purposes and to know you better. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anybody know what that music was? The Lone, the Lone Ranger, they all say. What was it, Tony? It was William Tell Overture. Who, who wrote it? Ah, oh, that's a tricky one. It was written by Giacchino Rossini. Rossini. It was the, it was the finale of his overture to his last opera, his 39th opera, William Tell. William Tell, you might know the story, it's an adventurous story of bravery and courage in the Swiss Alps. And so when Rossini wrote the overture to his opera and ended his overture, there was lots of excitement and lots of energy saying, here we go, William Tell, William Tell. And I thought last week um, I spoke a lot about science, so this week I thought I'd speak a little bit more about culture and hence uh, Rossini would be a good introduction to my talk. What could be more cultural than a symphony orchestra playing a rousing overture but perhaps I could do a bit better than that and we could have some poetry at the start of my talk. So I thought I have always liked the metaphysical poets particularly the John Donne, a Christian man for much of his poetry and I thought I'd share a John Donne poem with you, Death Be Not Proud. Here it is. I did bring my glasses, I could say that. Death be not proud. Let's go. Next one. I don't know if you can read that, but this is John Donne. A sonnet. Death, don't be proud. Be not proud, though some may call thee mighty and dreadful. Just back off the yellow. We'll go back there. Just wait for the yellows, Henry. Um, that's all right. Death be not proud, though some may call thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. You're not so wonderful, death, for those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pitchers be, oh, much pleasure. Then from thee, much more must flow, and soonest our Beth men do thee. With thee do go, rest of their bones and souls' delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings and desperate men, and dust with poison, war and sickness dwell. And poppy and charms can make us sleep as well. And better than thy stroke, why swelts thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally. And death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. A very, very Christian poem written by a follower of Jesus, if you are able to follow it. A great poem. But let me tell you a little bit about the structure of this poem. Here we go through things. This is a sonnet. A sonnet has 14 lines. You can count them. You must have 14 lines in a sonnet. A sonnet also has a very structured syllable structure. So if you go through every line in that poem, you'll find that there are ten syllables. Death be not proud, though some may call thee mighty and dreadful. Ten. Believe me, trust me. Ten syllables. And you go through and it's the same in every single line. It has a defined rhyme pattern. So if you look at the rhyme pattern here, thee, me, so, overthrow, me, uh, flow, go, me, delivery, men, then, dwell well. You see, it's got a very, very structure that changes a little bit. Not only that, the sonnet has a structured packet of thought. So if you look at the first 
eight lines were sort of light-hearted and, and, and whimsically critical. The next four lines were very aggressively critical of death and the last two lines are the note of victory. You do not dash off a good sonnet before dinner. A, a good sonnet would have, this would have taken John Donne weeks, if not months, to write. It is extremely structured. We're looking at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is not a sonnet, it's narrative, but it is extremely structured. Put my glasses back on. The first line and the last line all refer to God the heavens and the earth and creation. That's the end of chapter 2, verse 3, which is the end of this unit. It's almost like bracketing. Now, within that bracket, we have lots and lots of sevens. Seven being a number of perfection. There are seven days to creation. Verse 1 has seven words. Verse 2 has 14 words. The last little section for day 7 has exactly 35 words. Furthermore, the word God, Elohim, is mentioned 35 times. I don't know how you are with your times tables. The word earth is mentioned 21 times. Heaven and earth, or the word firmament, is mentioned 21 times. And it was so, this has gotten messed up by PowerPoint and transitions. And it was so, is mentioned seven times. And God saw that it was good, is mentioned seven times. There is a deliberate use of the number seven in this whole chapter. This chapter was not dashed off before dinner. It is incredibly structured. Now, it is narrative. It is not poetry. That is, it is a story or a telling a tale, but it's a highly structured narrative. It's very purposeful ancient literature. In fact, the whole of chapter the whole of Genesis is very structured, but chapter 1 particularly so. And it actually forms, I think, an introduction or to use William Tell's analogy, it's an overture to the whole book of Genesis. Actually, it's kind of an overture to the whole Bible story. See, an overture, it's more than just an introduction. It's a statement on its own. It sits independent of the greater body. Yet it sets a platform in a grand and demanding way. Like the 1812 overture. Da, 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 da. It's setting a platform. It's telling you something about what's to come and yet doing it independently. The style and the feel of what's to follow. William Tell's a rousing story. The William Tell Overture is a rousing overture of adventure. We're in our series on creation from Genesis chapter 1. We see in Genesis 1... We see a description of the explosion into the realm of being of the entire created order. That's what we have in Genesis 1. We have created order. The universe, you see, didn't have to be ordered. Scientists can see this. Some of them imagine, speculate on there being zillions of universes, most of which have absolutely virtually no order. Laws which don't fit into any cohesive pattern. But ours is remarkably ordered, miraculously, you might say, ordered and fine-tuned. The created order of our universe provides the framework that makes scientific investigation even possible. 
And what's, what did I, what's that I just said? Did I just mention science? You can't do that when you're talking about Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and science. Now there's a controversy, isn't there? Isn't there? At one hand, you have scientific skeptics and they'll say, Ha! Your whole Christian faith is overthrown. It's been totally discredited. It suggests that the world was created only a few thousand years ago. In seven days. That's nonsense. The universe is billions of years old. They said, no, no, it wasn't creation. It was evolution that led to the variety of plants and animals that we have today. And our earth is just a grain of sand in an, on, on an ocean of the universe. And you think we're so special. And so scientists discredit Genesis chapter 1, and, and some scientists, should I say, some scientists discredit Genesis chapter 1 and say your faith is useless. On the other hand, in the other corner, you have some Christians who insist on a very literalistic reading and scientific interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. So all the science is right here. Seven days, 168 hours, the earth is very young, and they develop their science and they print their journals and they decry the godlessness of the scientific community that doesn't accept what they say. And Christians who don't accept what they say. Both camps, the cynical scientist and the super scientific reading of Genesis chapter 1, bring a paradigm of enforced literalism to the text. As if it's a recipe. As if Genesis chapter 1 is a scientific report. God did an experiment. He called it creation. He had to write up his experiment and submit it so that it could be examined by his creation. And here it is. Now, I started doing comprehension, I think, about year two. By about year four, I think I discovered that you had to be a little bit more subtle when you read different documents. We have to read Genesis chapter 1 as it is, not as we might imagine it to be. And I think treating Genesis chapter 1 like those two opponents treat it is a bit like scientists, a scientist doing a report on an experiment that they have done and deciding to write it up in a sonnet form. Genesis chapter 1 is carefully crafted ancient literature and we need to read it as such. In fact, it's very similar in many, many ways to other ancient creation accounts. It's remarkably similar to other creation accounts. And it's those similarities that make the differences jump out and scream all the louder. You see, Mary had a little elephant. Its hide was grey as tar. And everywhere the elephant went, it stomped on people and killed them. Do you see how the differences just scream? Because it's so similar to what you are familiar with. In Genesis chapter 1, there is only one God, not many, who speaks with just a word and he creates Everything. Genesis 1 is, I think, a polemic. It's, it's a strong argument against those other prevailing stories of creation from the ancient world. There is not in Genesis chapter 1 lots of chaos. There isn't conflict. There isn't madness at the heart of the universe. 
There is created order from one all-powerful creative God. This is the writing of Moses. This is the word of God. But Moses wasn't there when these events happened. This was revealed to him, these words. This is an account of how creation came into being from God's perspective. It is not a scientific treatise, and neither is it myth. So what does Moses, or more importantly, God speaking through Moses, what do they want us to understand about creation? Well, there's a lot that can be said, and we'll be saying a bit more in the weeks to come. But this morning, I want to share four overarching principles that I think are as clear as daylight in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, I think these are the main themes of the overture. Themes that carry on through the whole story of God, through Genesis and then all the way to Revelation. And the first point cannot be avoided. God is the supreme Lord over all. The verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. God spoke. And so it happened because God did this. And then God did that. And just as he said, so it happened because everything happens at his word. Everything we see is a result of his sovereign purpose and creative will. He is without peer or competitor. In other creation stories, the gods struggle with each other for power. Creation may even be an accident or or the loser's trophy. But you can see there's no struggle here. Creation is God's will and God's purposes as one supreme Lord. He speaks and it's done. Sun, moon, birds, beasts, all are objects of his creation. They aren't rivals as they are in other creation myths. They are the, the objects of creation. And then God creates man and gives him great responsibility and honor. Because he is sovereign Lord over us, his creation. I am a little God of sorts. We have a dog. She's quite blind and deaf. She's getting old, poor girl. But on a good day, I say, come, and she comes. I say, go, and she goes. I I walk up to power switches, and it's dark, and I go, let there be light. And there's light. Sometimes I bake a cake. Dig a hole or paint a picture. They're always very bad, but it's the best I can do. I write a note. I'm a little God, but it's all limited. It's, it's finite, but not for the God of Genesis. He is supreme. He is to be praised and honored and feared and obeyed. And how strange it would be to live in a world that disregards the supreme sovereign one and rejects his supremacy. That, that would be the ultimate absurdity, wouldn't it? To live in a world which rejects the one who is supreme Lord. He is more than supreme creator, though. He is also boundary setter. God is a God of order and structure. He creates with purpose. God draws the lines. 
God sets the limits. He is the law giver. The whole structure of this chapter sets out boundaries and order that God has established. The whole of creation is created order. Why should it be so? Why should it be ordered? There's actually a structure in the pattern of creation you'll see in this table here. Days 1 to 3, God sets form in creation. So God separates light and darkness. He separates the sky and the waters above and the waters below. He separates the land from the sea and causes plants to grow on the land. In days 4, 5 and 6, next, go back to the table please, Henry. In days 4, 5 and 6, God fills what he has separated. He fills the light, the, 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 the light and the darkness with luminaries, with the skies and the planets, the stars and the planets. He fills the sky and the waters with birds and fish. He fills the land with animals and mankind and plants for food. When you're creating, say, to go to my clay pot, you set the boundaries. That's what you're doing. You're creating the form and then filling the form if you choose to. So in verse 3, God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. In verse 6, God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate the water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. The sea and the dry land is, is, is separated. In verse 15, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years, and let them be the lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so. There were two great lights on for the day, etc., etc. God's filling what he has separated. The, anima, the animate creation is commanded in verse 22, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. Can you see that our world is not a tub of maggots? It's not a compost bin full of worms. It's structured, it's ordered. It's kind of like a well-designed machine where everything has its place. There is order, there is law. God sets the boundaries. God makes it all work. How absurd then for us to imagine that we can move safely beyond the boundaries that God has drawn. That we can create our own laws. Disregard God's creative intent. It's a bit like imagining you've got your car. <laughs> this petrol costs so much money. I think I'll just drive my car without the petrol. So you start wanting to drive it on the starter motor. Come on, baby, go, 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 go. You can't drive for long on the starter motor because that's not how the car was designed when, it was, when the boundaries were set. But that's what we do. We, we disregard the maker's intent. We pervert, we distort, we twist. And we actually take pleasure in doing that in taking good things that God has given them and, and then twisting them. Because it tells us that we are sovereign, that we can choose where the boundaries are set. 
and it destroys us and it doesn't work. Now, God is supreme Lord. He sets the boundaries. It's his creation. We are his creation. He is Lord. Third point. The universe God created bears witness to him. That's what happens when you create something. The universe is not just a purely functional machine designed for a purpose that bears minimal witness to its creator. Say, say you design a turbine, engi- a turbine in a power station. It doesn't tell you a lot about the engineer. Now, God's creation is his handiwork. It bears witness to him. It's got his fingerprints all over it. So with our universe, God said, we'll look at there in verse 9, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear, and it was so. God's purpose. Verse 10b. And God saw that it was good. Yes, I'm happy with that. Verse 11b, and this is creating vegetation, and it was so. And God, in verse 12, said that it was, saw that it was very good. We have this concluding statement in verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and morning, the sixth day. Creation is brought to perfection in conformity to God's divine will. And it's all good. It's, it's his pleasure. It bears his, hand, his fingerprints. It's his handiwork. It bears witness to him. And so the scriptures testify, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Creation bears witness to God. You see, music, writing, art, handcrafted furniture, baskets that are hand-woven, they all bear witness to their creator. If you look at some landscapes from the Impressionists, have the next slide. One of them's Van Gogh, one's Renoir, one's Monet. Do you think you can tell, you who know a little bit about art? I reckon you can, because the landscapes bear witness to their creator, the artist who painted them. Have you ever heard the Moonlight Sonata? Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, beautiful piece of music. Beethoven was the artist who created the Moonlight Sonata. How silly to adore the Moonlight Sonata and to almost worship it just as a piece of music. Doesn't the Moonlight Sonata bear witness to its creator? Doesn't, in a sense, the glory and the joy, yes, it's good to have pleasure and to rejoice in it, but it's not an entity in itself. It bears witness and glory to Beethoven. The guy who was clever enough to imagine this beautiful music in his mind and put it on paper. How absurd to give honour and glory and praise to created things rather than the creator. 
And if you enjoy the Moonlight Sonata and you say, oh, that Beethoven was so good, you know what you're ultimately doing? You're saying the God who created Beethoven was so good, the God who created music was so good. And I get to rejoice in that. We admire creation, we rejoice in creation, we respect creation, but we have to acknowledge that it is ultimately the handiwork of God. How absurd to bow down and worship creation. To do that is to miss the point. How strange that we make so much of ourselves and so much of the passing pleasures of this world and the treasures of this world and yet fail to make so much of God who made it all. But you know, there's one aspect of creation that bears witness to God more than anything else. And that is you and me. We're not like the rest of creation. We are special. The whole creation narrative moves forward relentlessly towards its high point, which is found in day six, the creation of man. For we are the apex of the created order. We are the top of the pyramid, according to the Bible. There are more words in chapter one used. There's more description. There's more significance of order and glory and in relation to the creation of man than any other part of creation. For we bear witness to God. And we bear witness to his created order. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, all of this other created order. We're ruling over it. And over all the creatures that move along the ground. And God, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Everything is made for our benefit. We rule over creation. We care for it under God. We are vice regents. We are to reflect God's character and glory in our nature, in our being, in our rule. We are people of language and speech and self-reflection and character. We were built for a relationship with God, with one another. You know, we live in a glorious world. I, I like to, I, my homepage on my computer is the Bing homepage. One of the reasons I go to the Bing homepage is partly a rebel. I don't want to always be searching on Google and conforming to the rest of the world. So a little bit of rebellion in going to Bing. But the other thing I like about Bing is it has wonderful, wonderful photos every single day, which change. I'll show you some of the ones for the past week. It, just go to the next slide there, Henry. So this is this morning, two pygmy goats. What was yesterday? Let's have a look. Next one, Henry. This is the Columbia River in Oregon. Fantastic. We go to the day before. That's why I like being this. I had this one up before. This is ice fjords in Greenland. See that little boat in the back? Look at the colors. and the, What a beautiful sunrise, sunset. Next one. Grey owl on the hunt in winter. What a beautiful photo. What a beautiful bird. What a beautiful world. What have we got there, Henry? Japanese archers in Tokyo, dressed up in their finery. And I think finally the last one's wave rocking, good old WA. What a, what a wonderful world. What a wonderful world we live in. 
how glorious, far-flung galaxies and the barrier reef and what else. But you know, more glorious than all these things was the birth of Ethan Hopkins about one month ago. Far more glorious than all of them. Little Ethan. He is a wonder. He is a marvel. He is a miracle. And so are you. Nothing compares to you in terms of wonder and glory and beauty and capacity and complexity. Nothing says God is great like you do. Nothing in creation is so loved, as wonderful as God's creation is. Nothing in all of God's creation is so loved by the living God more than you are. How absurd to dishonor your maker, to act contrary to his majesty and law and love. How absurd to pretend that you are a God and to try to survive in this world, in God's world, without him. The Apostle Paul writes to the Romans about this absurdity in verse 21 of chapter 1. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking they became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. We are the apex of creation. But you know what? We're not the end point. The end point of creation involves us, but it is rest. The end point is peace. Peace with creation, peace with life, peace with God. Day number seven, peace that never ends. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. All of creation is called to join together in this day of rest that never ends. A day when we break from our labor. A day when we break from all pain and hardship. And rest in the goodness of God and his creation. So this is the biblical account of the creation of the world. I've tried to say from God's perspective. This is creation. God is supreme Lord over all. Because he is supreme Lord over all, he is boundary setter. Creation is his work, the work of his will, and it's a work of art. It bears witness to God. More than anything else in all of creation, we bear witness to God by enjoying his good creation and living in it rightly according to his boundaries. These are the central themes that run through the overture that is Genesis chapter 1, the story of creation. God speaks, God creates, creation is good, we are the apex, the high point of the story, and the end is rest. The pattern of the overture is the pattern of the whole story. The entire symphony, if you like, or the entire opera, 
It's the pattern of the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And this is the overture. The story of God, that what we find in the Bible, is actually the story of a new creation. And I'll tell you a little bit about how the story goes. You might want to use your imagination. It starts with this majestic overture. God created a good world according to his pattern. It's a wonderful, rousing overture. And then the pattern of the symphony changes. So if you like, a bit like the morning song from P. Gint. It's this sweet, melodic, beautiful, beautiful world. Until suddenly we have this dissonance. And the whole symphony becomes discordant and irregular. And we have the fall of man. We have a rejection of God's beauty. We have a rejection of God's majesty by those of us made in his image. And the discordance goes on for a few chapters until you get to Genesis chapter 12 when there comes a change of key. And a melody starts to slip in. A melody of hope for renewal. Hope for rebuilding. Hope for new creation through the person of Abraham. Abram. And if you like, the symphony becomes a little bit melodic, but a little bit confused, and you're just struggling to hold on. You know, the theme, you hear the theme, and then you lose the theme, sometimes which happens in symphonies. And it's a long symphony from that point on. But it keeps being a bit discordant until, until there's this sense of promise and the music starts to build, and the music starts to build, and there's this promise of hope, and the themes are getting stronger and stronger, and it's getting more and more melodic and more and more grand, and comes the Lord Jesus. And the angels sing with glory. And the symphony is rousing at the birth of this son. And we meet this Lord Jesus, and it's a song of victory. He conquers. He serves. He loves. He is the true Israel until smack. Everything takes a dive. And the music becomes heavy and hard as God's judgment is poured out on his own son who dies on the cross for our sin. And it's mournful music. It's heavy music. It's minor key chord, minor key music. Heavy and hard and dark. And slow. And all hope seems lost. And there is silence. And so you just start hearing the melodic sounds again. They're just drifting in the co- it's the strings to start with, just gently. And then it gets with a bit of wood behind it. And it's building and it's building and it's rising and it's rising because hallelujah, the Son of God raised from the dead. We have the song of the church, our song, which builds to the end to a hallelujah chorus, which builds to the end to, if you like, Beethoven's Ninth and the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Nine. And the angels sing, and we sing, and there is victory, and there is hope. Now, it all started back there with that overture, which set the platform. Genesis chapter 1. Because with the Hallelujah Chorus, there is new creation. There is restoration. Our God is a God of created order. 
It's his order and it's his kingdom that will prevail. It's his symphony, his opera, his song. We are his creation. All glory be to him and may we know Jesus, the one who gives us hope, the only one who gives us hope for a place in that song, the new song, the song of the new creation. Hallelujah. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let me pray. Father God, we do thank you for the great word of message in your word. We thank you for the hope of restoration in Jesus. We thank you that you are a good God. We thank you you that you're not only the God of creation, but you are the God of new creation. We pray that that would happen in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.